Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to another of the Euro Crisis at the LSE le lectures, and particularly, of course, to welcome today Professor Stefano Bartolini. So he has explicitly told me that I'm not allowed to do a long introduction because that will eat into his own uh, speaking time, so I won't. Um, but I'm just going to say a very few words. Um, as I'm sure you all know, Professor Bartolini is a distinguished comparative political scientist and expert in European integration. He's currently the director of the Robert Schumann Center for Advanced Studies at the European University Institute in Florence, or in Fiesole. And I'm really delighted that he's agreed to come here today and talk about the Euro crisis. Um, not least because he has produced many seminal works on European integration and the impact that European integration has had on the transformation of the nation state, on the transcendence of boundaries, and on how that has also affected political competition and democracies within European nation states. And several years ago, he also engaged in a debate uh, on the right and wrong sort of medicine for the EU, which is, of course, very topical again today. Uh, he debated this with our very own Simon Hicks, professor of the, at the government department here at the LSE, and they had rather different views. Uh, Simon will, of course, be here tomorrow to talk, so it will be interesting to see where the two scholars are today. But at the time, Professor Bartolini was rather more skeptical than Simon Hicks about whether politicization uh, would be a suitable remedy uh, to produce more efficient and democratic and legitimate governance uh, in the EU. And he said that this remedy might be worse than a disease. And one thing that this crisis, you can say this crisis has produced, is more politicization. So I'm very curious um, to hear today whether not Professor Bartolini's diagnosis and prognosis for the EU is any more optimistic today. So please join me again in welcoming Stefano Bartolini, who will speak... <laughs> and he'll speak on the topic, as you can see here, on the crisis, the new Eurozone governance and legitimacy of EU institutions. Welcome. Okay. Okay. So thank you... Thank you to all the participants. Thank you, Sarah. I wanted to thank Sarah particularly because as I was... Do you hear me? Yeah, that's... Oh. As, uh, 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 it's for me, coming back to the LSE after the 80s, uh, I will, that time I, I used to come quite often to lecture and, and, and uh, teach here. I was rather young. Uh, but then for a long period I had no chance to come to the LSE, so this is a very welcome for me coming back, and I enjoyed uh, four days of magnificent weather, and as I said before, I also discovered a new London, with respect to my memories. Now, I have accepted a, a task that Sarah gave to me by email, as usual, of course, to discuss this uh, complex question, and I've done so uh, with some element of irresponsibilities, because when I've accepted, I really didn't know what I would be able to deal with this uh, issue, and I've tried to work on this issue in the last two, three months, and I've come to the conclusion that, indeed, the topic is so complex that I didn't have a good conclusion for you. So let's hope at least that the development of the argument would be sufficiently interesting, even if the prescription 
policy suggestion at the end of the talk would probably be miserable uh, if at all present. I will divide my talk in three parts, as usual. I mean, uh, the first is to uh, revise quickly, succinctly revise the old argument about legitimacy in the EU. How it was framed at the beginning of the 2000, of the new century. The second part would be about what happened during the crisis, roughly between 2009 and uh, 2012. Short period of time, but an incredible amount of uh, institutional uh, activism. And third part, try to see whether what has been done during these years of crisis at the European level, how this impact on the old debate how it reframed the question, if it does reframe those questions that were originally presented. So let's start first from a rather quick summary of how the question of legitimacy, and if you want democracy, because in the end, legitimacy was considered to be deriving mainly from some form of democracy, was originally presented. We need to say something about legitimacy, because this is a controversial concept. As you know, sociologists define legitimacy very, very simply. It is the likelihood to be obeyed without being forced, of course, without being beaten or being bribed. As such, as a likelihood to be obeyed, it is an elusive concept. We can't study it. We normally discover ex post that there was some legitimacy problem in a situation, and it has never been studied as such. Now, so what we do normally when we talk about legitimacy, most of the debate are about, uh, indeed, the principle and the procedure through which it can be rationally argued that collectivized decisions must be accepted by those who have not participated to them, or, if participating, have seen their preference defeated. Now, how can they, or why should they accept that? This rephrasing of the question makes possible to discuss about legitimacy, even in the absence of hard evidence about the likelihood of obedience. The consequences for this uh, clarification are important for me because, first, it comes, it derives from this that. Legitimacy is unnecessary and immaterial whenever decisions are not collectivized. That is, when the actors concerned and affected are left with the possibility to leave, with the possibility to avoid the application and implementation of the decision. Second, any discussion about legitimacy is equally unnecessary and immaterial when decision are based on the direct participation of the actors that are concerned and affected. That is, when collectivized decisions are genuine collective decisions, and particularly so when these collective decisions are unanimous decisions. In this case, as I am arguing, legitimacy is totally immaterial. We don't have to worry about that. That said, one could stop any debate about the legitimacy of the EU 
The EU does not require any additional legitimacy beyond that indirectly offered by the voluntary consent of the member states and the ratification process of their parliament. Full stop. To the extent that the EU is based on voluntary agreement, it leaves a constant option to exit. It allows partial exit, opts out, variable geometry and the likely. Then the EU does not miss or lack any form of legitimacy. Therefore, the legitimacy of the European Union is fully dependent on the compliance of the member states and on the derivative legitimacies that they confer to it. Full stop. And many, many people have argued this. And many people are still arguing this. And that's, if, to a certain extent, is a good way out. When these arguments began to be no longer convincing? Well, in relation to three developments. The first was the spreading of qualified majority voting. And of course, as you know, if there is a qualified majority voting, you create the possibility that some member states find itself on the losing side. And then legitimacy problem emerge. The second novelty was the increasing legislative power of the parliament, which also created decisions which were indeed, as I have defined them, collectivized decisions, decisions that somebody had to accept, even not having participated or not having consented to those decisions. And the third was the increasing in quantity and quality jurisprudence of the European Court of Justice that was creating decisions very often on the base of the uh, empowerments of individuals and firms within the Union, even against national legislation and national concerns. If you combine more parliamentary decision, namely of a parliament no longer constituted by representative of the national parliament, but directly elected by, we could say a phantomatic, but still directly elected by a European citizenship, to combine increasing parliamentary decision with increasing court jurisdiction on delicate cases with increasing qualified majority voting, then of course you generate a problem of legitimacy in the sense I have defined before. What sort of logic argument can we use to convince people that are on the losing side that they should remain in the game? Legitimacy in this sense, as I said before, was seen in the light of democracy, of course. But democracy has two cones in our tradition. It has a liberal and a republican core. In a liberal core or liberal tradition, legitimacy derived from the fact that the power of governing and the governmental powers are constitutionally defined, constrained, and limited. In one way or the other, in different countries. A liberal conception of legitimacy stressed that human basic uh, rights have to be protected. And third, a liberal conception of legitimacy assumed that uh, a wide range of interests have access to the policy-making process. But there is also a Republican tradition 
in our conception of democracy and legitimacy, which adds other elements to our conception. Governmental authority must derive from an electoral process, which means accountability at regular period of time, and so on and so forth. Policy are influenced and shaped by free public debates. Non-political institution operates under the shadow of democratic majorities which retain a constitutive or constitutional basic power. Now, in the early debate about the European Union, one thing seems to be uh, accepted by everybody, that the EU had good credential in terms of liberal uh, foundation of legitimacy. One could add something about the separation of power, which was not exactly one, but nevertheless had, had a good... One could even say that the economic constitution that the treaty, the early treaty, was shaping was the foundation of an absolutely liberal vision of, uh, of, of legitimacy, but had also very poor republican basis. That is, a number of uh, decisions, European Court of Justice, European Central Bank, but also the Commission, were and still are immune for political pressure and intervention. No European government can be held accountable and politically bound to respond sympathetically, and so on and so forth. The weakness of the European Party, the weakness of the European parties, and so on and so forth. So the, the old image is uh, an embedded liberalism in the treaties, but a weak republican component uh, of the legitimacy that we normally understand as being necessary for uh, uh, our... Facing this, let me simplify, there were two proposed lines of reasoning. Again, I'm talking for those who consider legitimacy to be a real problem. Those who said there is no problem, legitimacy are a different school, and in a sense are not sitting in this room today. Otherwise, the topic would not be there. Now, for those who were concerned about the legitimacy sources, two forms of answer was offered. I would call them an institutional democratization answer and a political democratization answer. One line of thinking said, well, we should reshape the institutions of the EU, and particularly the connection between the Commission, the Council, and the, uh, uh, the uh, Commission, Council, and Parliament, in such a way as to make them more amenable to a definition of where political authorities lies and who is taking the, the responsibility for decisions. We have to change the institutional design, which might require changing the treaties, because the treaties now offer a very peculiar equilibrium. So a lot of debate about how could we change the treaties in the direction of, if you want, democratizing the institutional setting at the top of the union. This reflects very much the experience of many European nation states that first set up institutions and then only move to a political enlargement of participation and also partisanship and so on and so forth. If you want, this was once was called the Spinelli tradition, the idea that you could reform the treaties in, into a federal direction, readjusting the peculiar equilibrium between these three institutes. So that was one line of reasoning. But of course, that line of reasoning required changing the treaties with unanimity 
And most people felt already long time ago that that was very, 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 very difficult indeed. So more recently, and Sarah referred to that, another stream of thinking said, well, perhaps we cannot reform the treaties, but we can inject into the existing institution a modicum uh, percentage of partisanship. If we cannot change the institutional fabric, we can make it more political. We can make it more adversarial. We can make the president of the commission to be more linked to a majority issue by a parliamentary election. We can make part, we can, let's say, foster partisanship rather than try to obstruct it, which was a tradition. We can hope that uh, similar partisan divisions appears in the parliament, in the council, and uh, in the commission, so that uh, political sympathy might give some coherence to the interplay of institutions which were not devised for this sort of political. This is the politicization school, if you want, if you want to summarize it. Not touching the institutions, perhaps it's too complicated, perhaps there's no way to do it, Let's somehow circumvent the institutional uh, conservatism, if you want, by coming from below to a certain extent. And therefore the insistence on the parliamentary election, real candidates, this is a very strong uh, stream of thinking. One of the things that have surprised me most is that I have found this line of thinking very, very popular among the EU functionaries which has, uh, uh, has worried me to a certain extent, because uh, whenever I meet some, you find you say, we need parties, we need parliament. And I don't remember, I'm an historian of 19th century politics, and I don't remember in any European countries that the, the, the functionaries were insisting that the parliament should have more power and the parties. Are. So there is something, in my opinion, strange in this attempt by an executive elite to engineer some sort of bottom-up legitimacy predefined to a certain extent. But nevertheless, let's leave this. I, I'm not going to discuss Simon X and others, I mean, the, the arena people, this is about the play. But just to describe, this was mainly the landscape of the debate. And in fact, as you know, the debate as usually was, you know, for instance, the Lisbon Treaty had made some major steps forward, uh, the court decision in the parliament, the parliament become a real legislator, the, the stronger link between the president of the commission and the parliament itself, the, uh, the limited, though real, strengthening of the role of national parliament had been introduced in, in, in Lisbon, that the national parliament could stop some legislation at the European level. The citizen initiative. So a lot of elements were seen as steps in the good direction, one way or the other. As usually the debate was, is the glass half empty, half full, but basically. Then the crisis came. Now, in 2005, I published a book which was not about integration theory, it was about the impact of the EU on the national politics, but which concluded with the, set, with the following apodictic uh, 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 statement, which has become fashionable and very often quoted. Given its current architecture, the EU, European Union would not survive an economic crisis or a security crisis, full stop. 
Now, security crisis happily are not in sight, as far as I can judge, but the economic crisis is there, and is there since many years. What was the reaction of this set of institutions and politicians and leaders when facing the crisis? Now, I will have to go through a rather boring list of uh, treaties, sub-treaties, package, compact, and things. But this is necessary. I, I'm sorry. I mean, it cost me a lot of time. I have actually even prepared all the, the, you know, the acronyms because it's even difficult to, to, to remember all of them. So I have to bore you for a while in order to come to my conclusion. You all know Greece... Now, let's start from the stability and growth part. What existed before the crisis in the field of economic and financial management? It existed a pact called growing stability, which was included in the various treaties for Maastricht on, which was made up by legally non-binding political resolutions, and that included a preventing and a corrective harm. On one side, there was surveillance procedure, which was the core of the preventive harm. It was meant to follow economic development in member states and assess the consistency of the economic policies of the member states. They were supported by many regulations. There was also a correcting harm. I, I would spare you the, the number of the articles because this is really getting boring. That said, if you violate these uh, preventive rules in order to avoid excessive deficit, in order to avoid uh, fiscal profligacy, and so on and so forth, then they will be fine. And there were fines written down there. You have to deposit part, uh, a certain amount of money without interest, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. So there was, within the treaty the function of the European Union, what it's called. There were a number of articles from 2019 to 127 that were meant to say a framework of, of a legally non-binding mechanism of surveillance between states and of early warning identification of national policies which could violate the limits imposed by the common currency introduced at the Maastricht. But all this was made up by guidelines, peer reviews through the Council, and likewise legally non-binding country-specific recommendation. And this mutual surveillance, the entire set of the regulation, was what was defined in the European Union as the open method of coordination. That is, monetary and fiscal surveillance was an open method of coordination based on consultation, uh, peer review, monitoring, and so on and so forth, but no hard. It was felt that this would be enough to manage the single currency in the 17 countries now that have that. When the Greek crisis explode, and forgive me, but I won't say anything about the origin of the crisis, or the causes of the crisis. Let's assume that it was there. It was, a, a, as the economists say, an external shock uh, uh, to our life. Uh, it was there. How the Union reacted? Very, very interesting set of reactions. The first, 
agreement, the Union gave financial support to Greece through intergovernmental agreements and institutional solution completely outside the treaties. They were based on memorandum of understanding between the EU governments and the Greek governments. These agreements had primarily a private law nature. True, they were indeed intergovernmental. Lawyers would say this was clearly indicated by the fact that it was a reference to the applicable law uh, in these agreements. The EU was not uh, formally involved in this first supporting measure to Greece, but, and I begin to underline a number of interesting aspects, the EU was not formally involved, but the EU institutions were asked to coordinate the lending operation. Immediately after this first uh, rescue intervention for Greece, the Council, the European Council, adopted a regulation, Council Regulation 407, uh, establishing a first mechanism for intervening in case of financial stress in some of the member states. This financial stress, as you remember, sure, manifests themselves mainly into raising interest on the public debt and incapacity of the member states to uh, credibly face these high interest rates. The first mechanism was called European Financial Stabilization Mechanism. It was issued under the emergency procedure of the treaties, namely Article 122, and was meant to be used in future situations similar to the Greek one. This was a very orthodox European Union mechanism. It was administered by the Council, the Commission, and European Central Bank, was financed through the European Union budget. There was no direct member states' liability involved. Was activated for Ireland and Portugal? Problem. He had no money. He had only 60 billion euro, which, as you can imagine, was absolutely insufficient facing this. But that was a very orthodox European Union. And many people said, okay, that's the way to go. Huh? Only we have to find more money in the European Union budget, and more money in the European budget was not uh, available. Therefore, only a few months after that, the European leaders created a new mechanism, which was called European Financial Stability Facility. The first mechanism, the second facility. Now, that was also very interesting. This was established on the 7th of June two, uh, 2010. This was a private limited liability company created in Luxembourg under Luxembourgeois law. Immediately after, that is four weeks after, the member states of the euro, that is the 17 member states of the euro, conclude a framework agreement with this company private company deciding the institutional structure of this new European financial stability mechanism with the goal to offer assistance 
and grant procedure under strict condition of conditionality. It is important to know that the European Financial Stability Facility is not a fund in which the member state, and I'm talking about the Euro, Euro member states, you are happily scared, all of this, I mean, you know, the British citizens, uh, is not a fund where, where states put money. The financial means are raised on the open investment market, issuing various instruments, bonds, notes, commercial paper. The member states only offer the guarantee, the, the provide guarantee. Note that European Financial Stability Facility has an English low base. Though England was not part of Britain was not part. And note also that European Court of Justice was given jurisdiction for disputes among member states, while the Luxembourg Court was given jurisdiction for controversies between each member state and the financial stability mechanism. Note also that an array of functions were attributed to the institution and the organs of the European Union. The Commission, in liaison with the European Central Bank, and also in this case the International Monetary Fund, was negotiating the memorandum of understanding that countries were asking support have to sign before receiving the support. But the European Financial Stability Facilities was not part of the European legal order. Contrary to the mechanism, which was, this was completely outside the legal framework of the EU. It is difficult to decide, perhaps the lawyers could solve this, the exact legal nature of these uh, institutions, whether it's private law, public international law, or European law, but it is a fact that it was not part of the European. Immediately after, let's, 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 let's go quicker, the Euro member states, the 17 European member states that adhere to Euro, went further and signed for the first time a treaty, the European Stability Mechanism Treaty, on the 1st of February 2012. Uh, it was accompanied by a treaty amendment procedure, but this is too technical a, a problem. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it out. That treaty was dealing with the same problem. It was meant to substitute the European Financial Stabilization Mechanism and the European Financial Stability Facility. It was meant, again, to solve the problem of how to make available support for countries who are experiencing strong tension in the, the financing of their public uh, uh, debt or, or deficit. It was, again, in this case, European Stability Mechanism, an international agreement and an international organization under public international law. In this case, there is no doubt. There is no debate, if I have understood right among the lawyers, of what the European Stability Mechanism is. It is international public law. It is governed by a board of governance. The governance is in the hand of the Eurozona Area Minister of Finance. This is also important because this is a new institution. It's a new uh, governing board. 
It has a full and independent legal personality. It involves, as I said, the 17 Euro member states. Note, the European Stability Mechanism, it is not the product of the Council of Europe. Not the product of the specific council that represent the governors of the Euro area. It is the product, legally speaking, of a working group of that, of that council. It was ratified. It will substitute the European financial stabilization mechanism, the European financial stability facilities. In the future, its operation will not be subject to normal constraints of the EU legal order. That is, for instance, decision-making procedures, subsidiarity, closed judicial review by the European Court of Justice. That was not enough. In that same period, other development took place. I'll mention only two very quickly. First, there were decisions. These more or less were treaties, framework agreement. The two crucial decisions were taken by the European Central Bank. First, the European Central Bank on the 10th of May 2010 decided to launch a security market program, which simply meant that authorized euro system central banks to buy on the secondary markets debt instrument issued by public entities or private entities. That was the first step. This was not clear that the European Central Bank was entitled to do so. Actually, many observers argued that this was not foreseen, as the task of the European Central Bank was limited to a rather narrow set of objectives, among which the stability of the prices was the primary goal of the bank. On the 6th of September 2012, under, I must say, the skillful guidance of Mr. Draghi, the European Central Bank went further and uh, entered in what uh, technically bankers call outright monetary transactions. This substitute the security market program means that the bank can engage in transactions in sovereign bonds markets with no ex-ante quantitative limit. Full stop. There were two other parallel developments, this, this time in strictly within the European Union regulatory framework. The European Union wanted to improve the operation of the reformed economic surveillance regime, originally from the Maastricht Treaty, and issued rapidly one after the other a number of regulation and directives, one called six-pack and the other called two Back. Now, I don't want really to, 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 to lose, you, uh, lose your attention into this. Mainly, these were regulations that set limits to what the member states could do in terms of deficit and debt, and established procedures to surveil, to control, and in some cases to punish deviance from the general framework. Member states should be virtuous in their deficit and debt. And those who were less virtuous should, be, uh, should make a bigger effort to get in line with the general uh, number of uh, a number of very specific guidelines were offered. Member states have to present every six months 
a plan for what they meant to do in, mini, in fiscal and monetary politics in their country, there was a new excessive deficit procedure. If a country would get into an excessive deficit, then immediately would trigger off a number of reactions from first the Commission and the Union as such. Latest element in the strategy of constraint the national fiscal policy was the signing of a new treaty, which is even more complicated to remember. It is called the Treaty on Stability, Coordination and Governance. This is a new treaty, usually called, perhaps you know it under this name, which is Fiscal Compact. It didn't add very much. It simply put in a treaty form a number of provisions, those provisions which I mentioned to you, surveillance, uh, uh, early warning, and, and uh, excessive deficit. They were formalized into a treaty. Basically, the, 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 the six-pack and the two-pack were formalized in a treaty. But what sort of treaty? Now, that's interesting. Again, in this case given the veto of Great Britain and of the Czech Republic, one could not use the European institution and had to go for another international treaty under public international law. But this time, this treaty was not done for the 17 Euro member states, but for the 25 European Union member states, excluding Britain and the Czech Republic. So now I really get confused myself, because we had... Uh, Something like uh, 70 states signing European Stability Mechanism and 25 states, eight of which do not have the euro, signing the ratification of this guideline for excessive deficit and excessive bad, uh, without having the currency that would be so a sort of signing for the future, perhaps. The treaty had to be ratified those who have access for an exit option, Britain and the Czech Republic have no interest whatsoever to, to, to be bothered by that. The others have accepted that. Now, let's sum up. I've finished with a with nasty and, and boring part, but it was essential to give you the idea of how chaotic was, if you want to put it that way, the answer to the crisis. I could go on and enter a bit into the detail. It's what we have in the substance, we have certain agreements, private law character, memorandum of understanding, uh, particularly those that pertain to the first Greek rescue package, the loan facility agreement and the intercreditor agreement and the stability facility belong to this uh, type of uh, private law agreements. Then we have private, uh, sorry, agreement concluded under public international law, the European Stability Mechanism and the Treaty on Stability, Coordination and Governance, the Fiscal Compact. These are international public law treaties. Then we have executive decision of the European Central Banks, momentous. 
And we have legislative package of the Commission increasing the discipline, the control of the Commission over the fiscal and budget discipline of the member states of the Euro, plus these eight that have signed the last treaties, which are living in a limbo, I mean, are taking some sort of commitment for the future. All these are characterized by strong conditionality rules. To get access to financial support from this institution, you have to sign basically a memorandum of understanding, engaging yourself to profound reforms in line with the request of whom? The Commission, for sure, but also, second element of this uh, peculiar treaty, the presence of the involvement of expertise institutions. They are involved, the European Central Bank is involved, but also International Monetary Fund, which has nothing to do with the EU, of course, I mean, is part of this, together with the Commission. And all these are basically managed by the Commission. In terms of actual management, all these are managed by the EU institution, the executive institution, I mean, the general directors, basically. Now, there are a few problems, as you can imagine, in this landscape. And I'll try to mention a few of these problems and then come to a conclusion, uh, which is a non-conclusion. First problem, this mechanism bypass the procedural requirement to be respected to amend the treaties and in drafting secondary legislation of the European Union. Namely, the involvement of major EU institutions such as the Parliament, which is nowhere in this picture, or the European Court of Justice, which is there only when the member states have decided it should, be a, should have a jurisdictional power, not because of comp- direct competence on this matter. Second, even the Council and the Commission, which are some, sometime will come to that, describe the winner of this deal, have rivals in this new mode of governance. Both financial assistance and the tightening of, financial, of fiscal discipline have been discussed and often outside the institution foreseen by the treaties. In various, as I mentioned, working groups. Whose legal status is unclear to me. Uh, and at some stage, somebody will have to, to clarify what is the position of a working group. Uh, certainly, a working group is not the council. Clearly, if the problem is to sign an international public law treaty, every working group can do it. The, mem- the only involved entities are the member states who have signed their treaties. Note another interesting problem. Concerning the financial stability mechanism, FSM, why we went for an intergovernmental solution under international public law? Well, there the answer is very simple. The financial stability mechanism had quite substantial funds at its disposal. A lot of money, hundreds and hundreds of billions. I've forgotten how many, 700 perhaps. Uh, this money was not available in the EU budget. Therefore, it could only be done through an international treaty where the member states would offer their guarantee. But when it comes to the other treaty, the final one, the Treaty on Stability, Coordination and Governance, this is a regulatory treaty. It's putting together, as I said, all the rules that pertain to surveillance and, and so on and so forth. Why was it done by only 25. 
I have no answer. I really don't know why this, this, this uh, discrepancy. Third or fourth, I don't remember. The Union had a mechanism for making cooperation within a restricted set of states that go, want to go ahead in certain areas while others don't want. These were called, you probably know, enhanced cooperation mechanisms. None of these treaties make any reference whatsoever to the enhanced cooperation mechanism. Why? The easy answer I've been given is, well, there wasn't enough time. It's not very convincing as an answer. The fact, perhaps, is that the enhanced cooperation mechanism is a European Union mechanism and is subject, nevertheless, to all the procedural requirements and the accountability rule of all European mechanisms. While international treaties, those who sign can do whatever they want, even in the implementation phase. They don't have to respect anything else. I leave aside a small problem. We have now a plethora of new institutions, working groups, the Ministry of Finance. When you look at the governance of each of these, uh, of these treaties, they're never the same. and They're always different. But let's leave this uh, minor coordination. There was also a, a, a big question. There are in the rules of the EU uh, a number of clauses that say basically the following. European member states or subgroups of European member states should not enter into international treaties in areas in which the EU has potential competence. This is called preemptive, uh, preemptive, uh, uh, how is it called? preemptive effect on EU legislation or something like that. Were the member states of the euro area or subgroup of them or a subgroup of the entire member of the EU, like the 2527, authorized to enter into international agreements in areas in which without any question, since the Maastricht Treaty, there was a competence of the Union, at least in the surveillance aspect and in This might be a legal question. Fifth problem. If the member states are free to coordinate their economic policy activity through international treaties, which seems to be the case, can they also entrust and ask the European institutions to implement and monitor the implementation of those same agreements? My answer again, I don't know. I find pretty strange. <laughs> Consider also that the European institutions are, after all, the institution of the 27, not of the 17. Huh? A problem that will emerge in a moment concerning other, other, other aspects. Uh, Now, basically, member state executives have imposed on themselves the facto reduction of their sovereignty on an international basis without accepting, in principle, not only a supranational power, but even to comply to the existing EU procedure rules and accountability criteria, however weak and insatisfactory they might look to us. Not even that. So we have started from the critique of the legitimacy of the existing EU regulatory legal framework, and now we are discussing of a framework which has nothing to do with the EU regulatory and legislative framework.
let's come to the conclusion. What time is it? Lot of time. Well, I, I, I can all oh, allow. Well, no, no, not that tragic. <laughs> let's come to the conclusion. The conclusion are a bit speculative because one should try to answer next, what next, and, and, and what is the possible way out. I cannot answer that, but I can throw to you a number of reflections of scattered thought, hopefully not completely random, <laughs> about what problem we are going to be involved uh, uh, in the near future. It is clear that all these instruments, private law, international treaties, outside the EU law, etc., are all attempts to circumvent the unanimity law required by the EU and the safeguard and procedure set by the EU law. International law in this situation in the last four years has been used to repay the damage of insufficient or incomplete European law. That's the only interpretation we can give. Member states have deliberately chosen to get out. Those same member states who are in, of course. What does it mean for legitimacy? Let's now come back to the old problem. Let's revise the old problem with the new lenses of what has happened in this period. Now, we, I propose two simplified versions. Either we reform the institution, revising the treaty and giving a more coherent structure that identify the center of political responsibility, perhaps, I mean, uh, uh, changing the relationship between the Commission and the Parliament, uh, and the other, the political solution, the, the partisan solution. I mean, how do they find themselves after this? Uh, well, I must frankly tell you that they disappear. They are no longer relevant. This situation has completely changed the panorama of the European Union legal framework. If we look at the institutional reform, what can we say? For instance, is there any chance to involve the European Parliament in the Euro governance? No way. I don't see any reasonable way in which the parliament could have a say in this. Not only for the fact that it's completely excluded from the European Parliament has no legitimacy to intervene in international public law treaties among member states, if these are authorized by them. But for another aspect, the European Parliament, like many of the core institutions of the EU, represent the EU, 27 member states. How could a parliament split itself into subgroups dealing once with the euro, once with an international treaty, once in plenary discussing other areas of the EU that continues to, of course, to be there and to be, and to be discussed in other policy areas? How could this euro governance be brought into a parliament? We are experiencing problem of constituency congruence, which has preposterous. They apply to the parliament, but they apply even more to political parties. What is the sense of political parties? One, either you conclude that political parties should not be involved in, in, in economic, financial, and budgetary issues, which is, of course, nonsense for any uh, democratic uh, reasoning, or 
What do they do? Again, they split with those representatives coming from the countries which are non member of the Euro or non member of that specific international treaties. How can we arrange this with the institutional infrastructure of the EU? Again, there are a number of fields in which everything goes on as usual. But we are not talking a marginal policy area. We are talking about the Euro, finance, budget, deficits. And we are talking about a memorandum of understanding signed by the member countries under, under support and ratified by all the member countries that involve strong suggestion for internal, domestic, profound reforms of aspects like the educational system, the judicial system, and so on and so forth. We have witnessed the development of international treaties to regulate domestic policies, which is pretty new. International treaties that impact on domestic policies. Let's look again at the institutions. The community method, again in this area, what has happened to the community method? We all know, I suppose, more or less what the community method is. The Commission has a monopoly to initiate legislature. The Parliament and the Council have co-legislative in the bulk of areas, excluding foreign policy and defense policy, have co-legislative power that is this sort of navette between these two, and in the end this is a legislative process. There is no rule for, the, for this. Not even the Council is the, is the, is the master of the treaties that have been signed in these four years. And some people have said this is the victory of intergovernmentalism. Here I really disagree. Intergovernmentalism is a method of the Union and is a legitimate method of the Union. What we have seen has nothing to do with intergovernmentalism. It has nothing to do with the Council. We should not forget that intergovernmental is not a non-EU affair. Intergovernmental is the essence of the EU. But it was regulated. Remember the spirit of the early treaties. In order for the member states to cooperate, we have to set up institutions that are supposed to foster this cooperation. Now, we have set up institutions which are completely of, of of this matter. So the, it's a negation of the spirit of, 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 the, of, of the early treaties. If the Council has had any role, and it had a role because these people were meeting in rooms and deciding, it is not in its capacity of EU institutions that he had that role. It was just because the powerful people were sitting there. And that's important, but that's nothing to do. So I disagree with those who believe that uh, this is a sort of victory of intergovernmental uh, uh, procedure over other kind of procedure. This is a completely new set of procedure. And it's misleading to interpret this as an increase of the power of the EU institutions. The EU institutions are the real victims of what is happening during the crisis. All of them, in one way or the other. Let's look at the other aspect, the politicization thesis. The institutions have been devastated in my opinion. Is there any chance to recuperate some sort of political accountability through the thesis uh, of uh, an incipient politicization of the process of the EU? 
to inject majoritarianism, I can make the list, to create mandates, to increase the connection between citizens and political parties, and so on and so forth. Fine. But none of these institutions has anything to do with what I've been telling you. None of them. At the moment, the European Parliament could be Westminster, but it wouldn't have anything to say on the various treaties which are international public law treaties. It could be the most partisan institution on earth. It could have Her Majesty opposition in it. But it didn't have, it wouldn't have competence on most of this procedure. Not on all. So, if there were, and Sarah reminded you that I was not particularly enthusiastic about the politicization thesis in the middle of the one decade ago. But the difficulties of the all the thesis pales vis-à-vis the difficulty of the new situation. Um, the word that comes to my mind is some of these things have become immaterial. Uh, they're not really important. It doesn't make much of a difference, at least at, at the moment. What we have witnesses is something, this is really my conclusion, uh, which is, an, as I said, a non-conclusion, a couple of reflections. What we have witnesses are decisions. Decisions without norms. Lawyers get very, very scared when they hear about decisions without norms, because most of the lawyers say, but there must be some connection with norms, isn't it? Political scientists are less worried about decisions without norms. Uh, in the end, for a political scientist, the real interesting decision are the decisions without norms. However, most of the time, decision without norms, decision in exceptional circumstances, uh, decision in exceptional, exceptional decision for exceptional circumstances, that then would be ratified, regularized, perhaps legitimized, but then later on. Now the circumstances impose a decision are normally of two kinds. Either they emanate from sovereign power. That is, I'm sovereign, I'm taking the decision. Later on we will discuss eh, if I did properly or not. So either they derive from a sovereign power, and in the EU there is no way to, to argue that they derive from a sovereign power, or they, and these are the really interesting decisions for political scientists, constitute a sovereign power. The exceptional decision are a discontinuity in which something new is constituted. And actually, this was an option to create some more political guidance at the European level, financial means for the Commission, taxation policy. That was really the issue that we discussed. We have to do a leap forward in European integration with those who are willing to do it. That would have been a constitutive, a constitutive decision which was not taken. What I have described to you had nothing to do with the creation of new fiscal means of, uh, uh, of other uh, solutions. So we have decisions without norms, but without even a sovereign power behind them. Or without a sovereign... What, what are these decisions? I really don't know. Uh, I have some sort of uh, uh, difficulty to, to frame there in my... Have we... Witnessed the hand of the famous integration by law tradition. Remember, Europe 
Europe was seen as a sort of special construction in which uh, the political order would eventually be built up through a series of normative steps creating a legal order somehow deprived of a political power behind it. Huh? Certainly this is a big blow for this sort of uh, idea because clearly the crisis demonstrated that there is no way to jump from the existing legal framework a further step. We have simply left the framework. They got out of the framework. Political leaders have felt that they have to get out of the framework. Whatever the reason is. So we have a problem with integration by Is this the beginning of a two-speed Europe? That could have been another interpretation. Okay, 27 is too much. We face problem. We get rid of those who are not willing to come. We set up a new governance for the euro area, and this is going to be the core of Europe. Those who are unwilling will remain out. And actually, you know, there is a book by Piris, the, the, the legal... Uh, for, for a long time, the head of the legal service of the council, I think, who argued that. Argue, we are at the moment of, of making this choice. We have to have to soak. But honestly, is anything of what I've said to you envisaging a core Europe? Frankly, I do not see how you could reconcile this scattered and increasing set of measures with an affirmation of a new Let's say, which would have been France and Germany with Italy supporting it. Uh, I mean, there was nothing of that. So, what is it? <laughs> and this is my own conclusion. I don't know. Uh, we could normally, uh, academics would know that we are in a transition phase and then so blah, blah, blah. But uh, we are in a big, confused uh, uh, situation in which different legal means, different institutional agreement seem to coexist. What is essential is, however, is that however complex was the setting up of some European mechanism of accountability, uh, transparency, political response, however weak they were, they are weaker, if any. They are much weaker. And uh, second final point, I said at the beginning that Europe have a good credential in terms of a liberal conception of democracy, and it was weaker on the Republican. And when I said that he had a good credential in a liberal conception, I think I mentioned three things. I mentioned that... Uh, Basic human rights are protected, and nobody's claimed that human rights have been affected, though, though some of the, <laughs> uh, the measures in the, in, the, in the countries under, 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 under program might, might, might lead to opening that question. But nevertheless, let's assume that no, vi no deliberate violation has been done. I said that uh, the second element of a liberal vision of legitimacy is that a wide range of interests have access to the policy-making process. I really don't know what interest had access to this set of measures. I really cannot answer you. I have the feeling that very few interests had access to this process. This is a very closed-door process. And third, 
I said to you that a liberal conception of legitimacy assumed that power of governing and the governmental power are constitutionally defined, constrained and limited. I'm a bit unsafe on these grounds nowadays because I've discovered that the member states can do basically whatever they want if they agree among themselves. Uh, yes, of course, Parliament have to ratify, but we know there are hundreds of ways to get the Parliament ratified. But we have very little knowledge of the internal corpus of those processes that led to those decisions. Now, they have been applied under exceptional circumstances in a given field. Nobody tells me that they cannot be applied under different exceptional circumstances in another field. So even the liberal credential, in my opinion, gets somehow shattered. But only the Republican one, we have seen the Parliament, the party, they don't seem to be much in the future, but even the liberal one. And therefore, I conclude with, uh, given that, uh, you know, you, you, you study the feeling which is very normal that you invent new, new concepts. Huh? So I, I finish in but What is this? So, some people said this is a new authoritarian, a European regime. I mean, authoritarian is a bad, is a bad expression, they should have said autocratic, which is probably more accurate. But there is no authoritarian center, there is no authoritarian power, there is no strengthening of the center. Who are the master of this? I don't know, and I suggest to you that this could be a new, I call it, policycratic center. The, re the real sovereign are the policies, the compelling policies that we have to follow. They are the real sum. Every instrument is the good one because we have either to save the euro or to save Europe or what seems to be the driving force in this moment is a sort of blundering uh, 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 domination of policy goals and policy concern. And we could call it policitarianism or policyarchy or policyarchy or something like that just to add another, another name to the many that have been... Uh, Sorry for not offering you a more clear and compelling argument about what's going to happen in the near future. And thank you for listening to me. Thank you so much to Stefano Battalini for both a very informative and also very provocative talk. I'm sure that has raised some questions. Uh, we have about 20 minutes for questions, and so um, I will take a couple of questions now and then let Professor Bartolini answer. And if those of you who ask questions, if you could please introduce yourselves uh, first before asking the question, and if you could please keep it uh, short as well. There's one here, the gentleman there. Good evening, Professor, from uh, the class of 1980 at the LSE, and uh, congratulations on your analysis and therefore job application for leader of UKIP. Uh, I'm sure Professor Sked would be agreed. What have you, uh, in your study of this uh, crisis and in the analysis of the failure of governance, worked out is the uh, is there any uh, attention to the reasons why we throw money after problems and we don't address the fundamental problems? 
which are beyond representation, they are to the fact that these are dysfunctional institutions which have grown too large and, like a hydra, have to go offshore in order to solve their problems. There doesn't seem to be any concentration in Europe on uh, dealing with faulty constructs rather than papering over the uh, problems that exist at the moment. Thank you. And Davo, you had a question. Gentleman here. My name is... My name is Dauri Antic. I'm a Newton Fellow at uh, the Law Department of the London School of Economics. Thank you very much for your presentation. And my question uh, is closely linked to the, the question of democracy and legitimacy. Uh, and that is, what is your assessment of the status and position of national parliaments uh, in, the, in this year of crisis? Uh, Valtra Schelke, over there, please. Uh, Valtra Schelke from the European Institute at LSE. Um, what do you think of this interpretation? I notice at the moment that the literature that flourished in the 1980s about hegemony uh, has a kind of revival. You know, when the Bretton Woods system broke down, there was a lot of literature about what do we do in a post-hegemonic era. And one interpretation that pops up in the political economy literature constantly is therefore to say what we see at the moment is a breakdown of an economic consensus and therefore one would have to discuss the euro crisis in a bigger systemic financial crisis. And the euro area fights with the problem that it has only a weak hegemon who doesn't want to shoulder the, the burden and is also too weak to structurally do it. And this is what the EU uh, uh, struggles with. So, Stefano, if you want to address these three questions first, please. It's uh, usually a big question. Faulty institution design, and nobody willing to address it. Well, there, there the trap is very simple. Even if everybody agrees that the institutional design is faulty, there is no agreement on how to reform it. This is the essence, if you want, of the political predicament in every situation. The, particular, the, the political assume that you solve the problem who is going to decide about the next uh, institutional design. If you haven't solved that problem, then you have to sit around the table and then you, have a, you, can, you can model this uh, with, with game theory in which the inevitable usual result is the status quo. So I think the problem of the, the incapacity of the union to solve let me take a case and let me take a very, a very radical view. At the moment, the European Parliament is an institution that should be abolished. It doesn't really play any significant roles. It is a real problem. We have created, we have had a lot of expectation, but when you look at it, the maximum they can claim is, oh, you know, we have improved legislation. Come on. Every assembly of wise people might improve legislation. You should do something more. There are an election. Who is going to abolish the parliament? Or who is going, for instance, to raise the question, should we go back to the national representatives? Which wasn't a bad idea, after all. You remember when we had representatives of the... Which, it was, it, well, now, when I look at it, I say, well, was it so bad that we have to throw it out and go for this big elections which don't produce anything. So, but the faulty institutions is a classical political problem. When you have a faulty institutional design, either you have an external power, either you have a discontinuity, either you have a sovereign exceptional decision, 
or if you sit at the table to solve the institutional problem, you are very unlikely uh, to, to face it. What are national parliament doing? I would, I would be tempted to say they are scared. If I have to answer shortly, they are scared. Who is going to dare under the current situation not to ratify something which all the implication that that would have meant in this period? More implication in some cases than in others. But my impression with the usual exceptions, you know, smaller countries which there is a more direct control is that the parliament have been basically blackmailed into the game and said, listen, this is what we have to do, full stop, and Silence, and you know, they say in the military, say silence and march. Uh, that, that is my quick uh, impression of. Uh, uh, well, the problem is that national parliament at least have the advantage that they are still, uh, they are still, uh, uh, they are still responsible for quite a number of things at home, <laughs> and uh, perhaps it would be. As far as the European integration process is concerned, the performance of most of the national parliament have been rather insufficient, I would say. I don't know say, insufficient. In certain countries, yes. I mean, but for instance, in all those countries in which the parliament, like in Denmark, for instance, also in Britain, they have set up rules for scrutinizing legislation. These rules have worked whenever there is a very classic procedure. Uh, there is the, the commission initiating a proposal, the parliament discussing, uh, and then everything is known in advance. But for this radical, exceptional, uh, ultra virus, if you want, decisions, well, the parliament had only a choice, yes or no, basically. Uh, it was certainly not a choice to discuss anything. And when a parliament... Uh, collective institution is faced with the question of yes or no. The parliament is not meant for, it's not a referendum, a parliament. Huh? When it is confronted with a yes-no question, then it can say yes or no, but it does, it's not really performing its job. A parliament should be a transformative arena. Things get into a parliament, get debated, get modified, and get out somehow different from how they get in. Otherwise, we expect at least parliament to do so. Now, in these circumstances, they couldn't do so. The question of the weak hegemon at the, at the world level, this is a, a very difficult question. I mean, Europe was built with a weak hegemon to begin with. Europe is an exit structure in many, many, many ways. Everybody can leave everybody can be given exceptions, options out, even in extremely delicate fields. So it survives at the cost of a very, very low hegemonic production. Take the euro. And uh, how could you imagine that the number of countries created the euro and left the city to to, to, to handle it. The creation of the euro was completely unaccompanied by any, what you would call probably, hegemonic flanking measure that would probably be detrimental to the interest of the city. But that would have made, that was left out. I mean, the only thing that Britain obtained is indeed 
fine, provide that you deal with this currency in the London. In all the fields, you would identify the same strength. Now, the real question is the following. For a long time, for decades, the discourse within the union was the following. Yes, we have to go slowly because we have this sensibility, we have the other sensibility, the Danish have a problem there, the Finnish have, But there is so much time. We can go slowly. You know? We can accumulate slowly. We probably need another century. I've heard this argument. There will be another, we will need another century, perhaps two centuries. There is no guarantee that anybody will give us that time. And the impression is that if the board order is non-hegemonic, we don't even have anybody to negotiate in order to buy time. The world is simply going in different directions. And it's probably possible that some of this tension would be become internalized in the European Union that was built as a weak hegemonic construction under the assumption that there was a long time. After all, the founding father design was that we would be slowly from functional areas, certain policy to more and more demanding policy towards something which was... A, but the journey was very long, always ready to be stopped, postponed, uh, 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 depending on circumstances which were internal, always internal. The external circumstances were considered largely irrelevant. We all know that until there was the Cold War, we were under a relatively safe umbrella, and the world was disciplinedly walking along. And since the end of the Cold War, the, the world is going its own way, and very often not caring very much about the, the, the many subtle distinctions that the Europeans uh, make uh, for their internal affairs. Uh, so I, I do not exclude that there might be tension deriving from the international order within a still very weakly structured union. If, if that was your question, I'm, I'm for certain. Thank you. Are there any final questions? Uh, gentleman there in blue in the middle. With the. Thank you. Um, I'm an LSE student in environmental economics. Um, coming back to the various institutions or agreements um, whose development we have witnessed during the crisis um, and whose coherence is questionable, um, would you say, despite the difficulty of that, that there is any chance that at some point they will get integrated into uh, the current legal EU legal order or that somehow uh, the existing order will have to collapse before and that completely new um, institutions will have to, to emerge. Thank you very much. And there's a question of the gentleman there in the back. Uh, John Strafford. Professor, you uh, describe legitimacy as the compliance of the member states uh, and national parliaments and yet democratic legitimacy involves the people. And yet you seem to have written off the European Parliament, where they may have had some, uh, some say, and you talk about decisions without laws, and it seems to me that what you're describing is a self-perpetuating oligarchy exercising power as, a, as an authoritarian dictatorship. In which case, when will the revolution start? And are the riots in Spain and Portugal and Greece just the beginning skirmishes. And a final question here, gentlemen with the glasses. 
Hello, I'm, I'm Stephen Day from uh, presently affiliated with uh, St. Anthony's at Oxford. Um, I was just, I just kept having in my mind that the EU institutions have been, are being crucified in this process. And uh, I then thought with uh, what Jesus is meant to have said about, you know, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they have done. And I'm wondering whether that is or could be an explanation um, because I don't, get a, is, I don't get a sense of like a conscious design of how this has uh, unfolded. Thank you very much, and over to you. Well, in, indeed, this is the most first question. This is the most uh, optimistic uh, uh, outcome, that after the crisis, if the crisis will be over, uh, in a moment of quietness, all these, uh, let's call it, uh, divergent uh, setup will be brought back under some sort of European legal uh, framework. That would imply, for instance, that all these uh, measures will have to be reframed uh, uh, with uh, 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 enhanced cooperation uh, uh, framework, uh, a lot of work of integration, systematization, I mean, eliminate some of the things that have been created exactly to face the crisis, like the Greek uh, private uh, agreements. Some, some of this can be done. So that would be the optimistic uh, uh, vision, that at, uh, at, uh, at, uh, at the right moment, order would be brought back and cost might, me, might be reduced or minimalized. Uh, I'm, I'm frankly not convinced that, that, that this is going to be uh, uh, the easy. Uh, first of all, because uh, this idea that the crisis is going to, to finish soon and that we will... It's already a very optimistic vision. I mean, Japan didn't get out of the crisis for 20 years. I mean, we cannot survive for 20 years. In a sense. That would be a very long period before we can restructure uh, the framework. We have no guarantee that the crisis is, is finished in 2014 or 15 or 16, for that matter. Uh, uh, the self-perpetuating oligarchy. This is a question that involves strong, strong, strong. I don't think that what animates European, convinced European, is a search for power or is an ambition to become an oligarchy. And fully convinced that most of the people, that both at the national level and at the European level, work for the European Union, are animated by good ideas of what should be the uh, common good to be pursued. I don't buy the, the, the conspiracy thesis, in a sense. The problem is that the mechanism of the European Union impose prices to these agreements, which have become increasingly too high. And these are traps. These are institutional traps in which we got Im embedded without necessarily anybody being responsible or having a hidden design. That, at least, is my perception. So it's true, there is an element of oligarchy in the sense that these people are very separate from the common people, they're very far away, they have a strong esprit de corps, and so on and so forth. But I wouldn't, in any circumstance, attribute to, to them a design of this nature. Though... Uh, 
It is true. Sometimes when you talk to top bureaucrats, you have the feeling that they are too far away from, 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 from the reality and somehow themselves entrapped into, into their pursuing a, a, a design which is not negative, which is not, uh, but which somehow uh, uh, is more and more costly in that sense. So that, that would be my... my uh, Sorry, I've forgotten the third question. Uh, uh, you, you mentioned about conscious... Uh, Whether it was by design, so in a sense you addressed oh, it. Uh, yeah, in a sense I addressed No, I think uh, the best way to describe the union is really to some sort of uh, uh, game games uh, in, in which unintended outcomes emerge at every moment. The union is fascinating for social scientists because, you know, Social scientists should be dealing with unintended outcomes. Sometimes when I read certain social scientists said to me, I wanted to go to the movie, he wanted to go to the movie, we went both to the movie. This is a good explanation of what we did. This is not, this is, you know, what is interesting for us is two boys going to the movie while none of them wanted to go there. <laughs> that's the really interesting uh, issue. To a certain extent, that, that's, that's union. I mean, you know, the, 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 the combination of circumstances with preferences, with natural create continuous unintended consequence. Of, of, of a, but what is more peculiar to the union is not the production of unintended consequences. It happens also at the national level. It's the incapacity to redress that is really the specific element. It's so difficult to redress. While at the national level, you can redress. And you see things like, no, policy is not performing, uh, a party is not... You redress. There are limits, and, and then some sort of... At the European level, given the institutional architecture, uh, it is extremely difficult to revert, to, to change, to... So the, the, the so-called, I think, several rational design there is not there. We don't, we don't even, so in that sense, I'm also coming back, we don't even have a dictate. <laughs> we don't even have that. A dictator might be very dangerous, but occasionally might solve the problems. We don't even ha ha have that. So uh, is a conscious design? No, no, for sure not. I mean, the, answer, the short answer is not. not. It, it, it's a complex set of unintended outcome in an extremely complicated game, which is not only multi-level, as we very often hear. Of course, there is the nation state, there are, but this game is becoming more and more multi-logic, multi-places. It's not only multi-level, there are also multi-places. And this uh, recent uh, new institutional solution add the number of locus, the number of places in which decisions are taken and you know very well, our starting point was legitimacy and democracy. I mean, legitimacy and democracy required the identification of political authority and therefore responsibility. If political authority and responsibility is spread in too many levels and places, nobody, either we invent a new solution for some element of accountability or the accountability is likely to dissipate, in a sense, in a thousand of of mini, 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 little, uh, not rivers, I would say, mini, smaller than rivers. Mini. <laughs>
thank you. Well, on that, I guess, very interesting, exciting, but not very optimistic note. You didn't come here, and you're not more optimistic than you were seven years ago. That's, uh, I guess, one conclusion, but nevertheless, a very, very thought-provoking and informative lecture. Thank you so much for that. Before we thank Professor Bartolini again, I just want to, as I alluded to in the beginning, say that uh, Simon Hicks will uh, be speaking at the same time, at the same place tomorrow, speaking on a democratic macroeconomic union. Uh, so uh, maybe that means that he's more optimistic. Who knows? You'll have to be here tomorrow to see. But let's thank Stefano Bertolini for a great lecture. Thank you. Thank you.